I had a lot of anxiety, to be honest with you. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I came back. And I had an idea, you know, and I said, I'm just going to try it. There was no big epiphany, anything like that. It was just kind of, it kind of evolved into, you know, what the hell, why not? Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome to the pod. Boss man is on paternity leave today. Big congrats to the boss man is due. Today's episode is called No Epiphany Required because you're not going to hear about a light bulb business idea or an overnight success today. And the reality is, is that even if that happens in the journey of an entrepreneur and people frame it up that way, like, oh, I saw this big opportunity or whatever, the day-to-day reality of being an entrepreneur has nothing to do with the feeling of having that insight. In fact, it's often the opposite. Like you have no idea where you're going. You're confused. The path ahead of you is shaded without light, without epiphanous light. Okay. Today's the story of just keep plugging away, putting in the hours and doing it your way so you can enjoy the journey. Today's guest, Chris Cage, first came on this podcast in 2015. And we're going to play back some clips from that app just for fun to talk about his company called Greenbelly. Now, Greenbelly manufactures and sells mega calorie, high nutrient bars for people doing extremely long treks or cycle rides or activities where you need a huge calorie load. You basically need a meal in a bar. Stick around on today's app. And you're going to hear why Chris, like me, is in love with Chiang Mai, Thailand, which is where we recorded this episode in person, and what it's like to appear on the Joe Rogan podcast. But let's start with Chris's entrepreneurial story. When he was on the show in 2015, there was a lot of question marks about his path forward. Chris's story starts a few years back when he quit his job as an accountant to embark on what would be a life-changing experience and what would eventually become the inspiration for his first book called How to Hike the Appalachian Trail, a comprehensive guide to plan and prepare for a successful thru-hike. I'm so tired of playing, playing with this bow and arrow. I was a Boy Scout. I spent a lot of time hiking, and specifically on the Appalachian Trail in North Georgia, and it kind of been in the back of my mind for many years that I wanted to do a through hike, which is a six-month journey from Georgia to Maine, or in my case, Maine to Georgia. What's it like for people that don't know about that scene or don't know even about the East Coast of America? Yeah, it's a very historical trail. I think it was developed in the 1930s. So it's a continuous footpath, meaning if you set foot on it, you don't have to stop, get off, read a map, really anything. It is one continuous footpath from Georgia to Maine. If you started walking and slept every night, like how long would it take you? About five months. So it's a little over 2,000 miles. You hike generally from 10 to 20 miles a day, but you're sleeping out on the trail every night. So you're in a tent or a shelter every night. So you're burning a lot of calories every day, sleeping outside. I mean, you're basically, yeah, you're backpacking for five to six months. Is it a social scene out there or is it pretty lonely? 
it depends on which direction you go. I was southbound, meaning Maine to Georgia. And then the other direction is obviously northbound, which in Georgia to Maine is much more popular. So you, I think it's about 90% of all called through hikers, people that do the full hike in one continuous run is called a through hike. But 90% of all through hikers go north, which is very crowded. So why? It's becoming popular. You ever heard of the book, A Walk in the Woods, Bill Bryson? Yeah, I read it. I think in the mid 90s, that book came out. I think the number of through hikers tripled that year. Really? And then same thing, you know, Wild was the Reese Witherspoon movie. Did you see that? No. Wild is about the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail on the West Coast, which is Canada to Mexico through California, Oregon, and Washington. But the through hiking sport has gotten a lot of traction lately. Why? Take away from the media stuff. Why is it becoming more popular? I, I don't know. I think some people are, are more and more wanting to be outside, get a little disconnected from tech. I know that's one big thing that we always kind of were proud of is that we didn't carry phones, you know? Like, I remember I had my phone off when I was hiking for at least, you know, three or four days at a time until I got back into town, which is pretty incredible. And you know, I'm not checking my, think about how often you check your phone right now. I mean, I'm checking that thing like every few seconds subconsciously, like, hey, what time is it? Did I get a new email? Like, you know, it's just like constantly pulling your phone out of your pocket and looking, seeing what's going on. It's like, yeah, that's one thing on the AT. It's just, everybody's disconnected. Maybe the more we're going into tech, the more attraction it has to be disconnecting from tech. You said it, it takes 5000 bucks to get through the AT. Is that an accurate figure? Because when I read that, and you had a good job, you, know, all, you were doing everything right up until that point in your life. But like a lot of us, you fantasized about dropping out. And I, when I saw that $5,000 figure, and it takes six months to go to the AT, you know what I thought? I thought, man, you could go to Chiang Mai for that too. Yeah, there's definitely a low barrier to entry, right? 5000 bucks. I mean, yeah, you can live on Thailand almost on that same budget, right? 5000 bucks in six months. What are you spending that five grand on when you go to the AT, though? Lodging and food. So even, even if you're hiking on the trail for you know, most of the time, you still go into town every, every... It ranges, but generally three to seven days. You got to buy a hotel, wash up, and you got to resupply food. So those are your two big expenses. You got to shower, you got to do laundry, maybe check your phone, check on emails, all that kind of stuff. So one day, you really cram a lot in in that one day back in town. What would be the median backpacker meal on the AT? Could you describe some of the things that people would typically eat? Really anything and everything. The average kind of backpacker out there is doing a lot of fast prep stuff, super lightweight, and it's completely dehydrated. Noodles and tuna. So everything has to be extremely packable, very little cleanup. So a packet of tuna, maybe some dried noodles, lots of bars, you know, anything kind of ready to eat, dried fruits, nuts. That was pretty much my thing is peanut butter, dried nuts, dried fruit, bars. And then at night, I'd make one warm meal a day. And that was at night. And then usually heat up some noodles, toss some olive oil, tuna, and maybe some dried veggies in there. All right. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Yum. What percentage of hiking the AT is sort of existential misery versus that moment of the nice view? Or That's a great question, man. Every day is different. You know, so many days, yeah, you're, mis- you're straight up miserable. Everybody's different too. You know, some people are truly like dragging out there like this sucks. You know, this sucks. I haven't slept. I'm tired. I'm losing weight. You know, I've got this pain in my foot that won't go away for like weeks. You know, I think I have a stress fracture. I can smell myself. <laughs> I can smell myself. <laughs> but then I, I don't know. I would say for me, I was actually a pretty good mental place. I was, I was pretty happy. I think the majority of it, you know. I think it was also so fresh of leaving the job and it was just like 
it's such a choice to step out there. You know, you're kind of sitting there saying, this is my doing. Nobody's making me do this. You know, it's like that mentality in itself is kind of a positive one. You know, it's like, I'm out here hiking every day. I'm not working. Like I'm, I'm on a trail. Like I'm with cool people. I'm seeing cool stuff. What do you think the biggest misconception about the trail is for people who haven't done it? I think you just touched on it. Some people certainly think it's miserable, the idea of being outside for that long. But some people get caught up in the romanticized, oh, I'm going to be on top of mountains every day and it's going to be beautiful and I'm going to, you know, it's going to be great. And then I think the reality for a lot of people is, wow, this, I didn't plan it all for this. You know, I don't, I don't have the right gear. I'm hiking all day, every day. This is not fun like I thought it was going to be. So I think if you go into it thinking it's just going to be, you know, all rosebuds, it's not. Afterwards, did you romanticize? Yeah, you know, I still romanticize about it in, in a positive way. Sure, I learned plenty of things. And I think it was, yeah, parts of it were painful. You know, sometimes you got to suck some things up. So certainly learn some kind of, I guess you could call it character building, right? So you're on this trail. You've quit your job. What did you think about your prospects at the end of the trail? Like, were you just going to go back to the job? I had a lot of anxiety, to be honest with you. Didn't know what I wanted to do when I came back. I was thinking all sorts of stuff, you know. I was thinking about starting a business. I was thinking about doing the accounting route, but doing it in more of an industry I enjoyed, which would be, you know, a backpacking industry and maybe music industry, something like that. But I definitely had on the back of my mind the idea of starting a business. I just had no clue how to do it. So what was the the first domino? I don't know. I came back. I had a little bit of money in the bank. And I had an idea, you know, and I said, I'm just going to try it. There was no big epiphany, anything like that. It was just kind of, it kind of evolved into, you know, what the hell, why not? And the idea was scratch your own itch, essentially a meal replacement bar. There was a product in New Zealand, very similar. And it was, I was chomping them down in New Zealand. So sidestep before the Appalachian Trail, I'd done a, a long cycle tour in New Zealand where it was a similar type of lifestyle. I was cycling all day instead of hiking every day. And I was burning a lot of calories. And there was a product there that I was eating a lot of. And it was a heavy calorie kind of complete meal bar kind of concept. And I came back to the States. And when I was hiking the Appalachian Trail, it wasn't there. So I started kind of thinking about, well, could I make this similar thing in the States, you know? And so I did, you know, scratch your own itch. I was like, I want a ready to eat meal that's loaded with nutrition I was eating a lot of, you know, peanut butter and all that kind of stuff on the trail. I thought this concept, you know, could really knock it out of the park in the States. And I had seen the demand, you know, kind of firsthand on what I thought the product could do and could be, you know. The product looks beautiful on the site. Why can't I just go buy a bunch of cliff bars, you know, down at the gas station or whatever and load up on them? There are a few things. One is the structure and the intention of a cliff bar. You know, cliff bars are about 200 calories per cliff bar. So with Greenbelly, we're about 650 calories. So you're already there going to have to have about three cliff bars to get just the calories. And the second thing is nutritional balance. We do the 33% of your daily value kind of down the label for your macronutrients. So one cliff bar, if you tripled up, you can say, okay, well, why not just eat three cliff bars? The balance of nutrition down the label. So for things like fat, sodium, it's not going to be at that 33% level. You're going to be out of whack big time. So they definitely don't add up to a full meal structure we added a lot of stuff like crisp rice to really make it nice and soft and fluffy so you're not going to be eating three cliff bars for a meal that's like really dense goes down like a rock in your gut the last time you were on a show i'm going to play some clips from it you had just made twenty thousand dollars on kickstarter 
I knew that at the rate that I was gaining customers in my revenue, I knew that I needed to, you know, up the ante. I needed more volume. So I kind of started thinking about fundraising in general and, you know, the conventional options of an investor were kind of scary because I didn't want to sacrifice equity. I didn't want to go to a bank and, you know, go into debt. There's no way I was going to go into debt with a product that I was not completely confident in. And I kind of heard a little bit of buzz about Kickstarter. And after a little more research, I found out a lot more of the pros of Kickstarter being you can really validate your product. You can test the market, see if this is really a good product that people are willing to exchange their money for. You can get PR from Kickstarter. A lot of people go on Kickstarter. I think they have 8 million visitors. Did it end up going okay? What was the story of how you spent the 20 grand? Outsourcing production was huge, huge. I was doing everything by hand. I remember when I first met you, I think I was making them still with my mom. Yep. And that was a huge thing Kickstarter did. And you thought you might even buy a kitchen at the time. I did. I did. Around that time, I had a large order. You know, it wasn't huge, but it was a large order. I don't remember the numbers, but it was roughly 5,000 meals that need to be made. So I knew that I couldn't make that. Or if I were, that would just take forever. So that was kind of the turning point to say, I've got to get a different setup, you know, for the facility. So with that money, I had a large order and I could say, let's find a kitchen. Let's find somebody to make these. Let's get a nice certified facility. Let's get some employees. Let's get this thing set up nicely. So went and did a lot of research, found a facility that worked and told them, you know, kind of where I was and that I had this large order that needed to be made by a specific date. What was their ability? What was their capacity? And ultimately found somebody that we were still working with to this day, and they've been great. That was the biggest thing that we were, or I was able to do with the money was set up. It's like a professional commercial kitchen, basically. Yes, and they make granola. So they had some downtime in their production. They had extra storage. It was a real win-win. I came to them saying, I can take some of the overhead expense off your back, you know? And at the same time, I don't have to take the full amount of risk to set up my own facility train my own employees, you know, deal with all that kind of nightmare. This was like a thousand days ago, right? Dude, you're right. I know. And you had that podcast, A Thousand Days. And what's the catch? Okay. So the thousand day principle states that when you start a new business from the day you start making revenue, it generally takes about three years to replace your corporate salary from your business. You nailed me to a T on that. Really, I mean, pretty exact. So the thousand day mark for me, I think I had probably started to turn back to my corporate salary and accounting probably, I mean, who knows, maybe more like day 800, 850. Yeah, now I'm, I would say double my corporate salary, which is, yeah, it's been really nice. So it's, it's been a long road, man, since we last talked. A lot of things can happen in a thousand days as, as an entrepreneur. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. So it's been a long road, but Green Valley is doing well. When we first met, like you were living in where? I think I was with my mom in Georgia. I think Ian and I were like, we want to meet you, come to Austin, Texas. And then like we hung out and we went out to dinner with a bunch of entrepreneurs and they were like, oh, like, you know how it is like when there's a younger entrepreneur at the table and everybody's like, oh, this is great. You should do this. You should do that. And all the old guys love to give advice. So the first thing we looked at when we looked at your product that I noticed, and you can decide how far you want to go into these details, Chris, but the first thing I noticed was like, you got to double your price, right? So right now you're selling the bars for how much? Four-ish. Right. And I said, Chris, where in America can I get a meal for $4? And you said nowhere. So <laughs> right away. Except for McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> Vietnam. Right. 
So right away, we decided, you know, that you've got to double your price. And I think that that's a really important part of this because your margins look really thin. And if you're going to run a real business, you got to have some margins built in, especially in the beginning, because you got to have all these overhead costs. You know, we're talking about a kitchen, we're talking about insurance, we're talking about your salary, all this stuff. So I think what we had to do was we had to lay out these spreadsheets. Last slide is interesting. You were sitting around a table and entrepreneurs were just jumping all over you. The impact of being in a place like Austin has got to be pretty immense for starting a business like this, yeah? Definitely. And for any of you entrepreneurs out there that are doing a business by yourself, I think you can appreciate how lonely at times it is. So I think even last night, like talking to those entrepreneurs, like there was definitely some electricity for me kind of like, whoa, that's a good idea. Like, hey, maybe I need to be coming somewhere where there are a lot of other entrepreneurs that we can kind of have a little bit of synergy, feed off each other, bang off ideas. So that's definitely another consideration that I'm thinking about is where do I see myself living where I can kind of get that sort of feedback and energy that it will be so essential to going forward in the long haul. You said, I need to find where I can get some of that feedback and energy that's going to be essential going forward in the long haul. So in other words, you've had the sense that to get to your thousand days, you needed to change your social network. I would have to attribute a lot of progress to some sort of network, you know. The DC was great. Plugged in with a lot of entrepreneurs with the DC I was in Austin, you know, pretty much right after I saw you, I moved to Austin. There were a lot of entrepreneurs I connected with in Austin. I spent a lot of time, not too far after that, at DCBKK, right? That was that same year I went to DCBKK in Bangkok. And not long after that, I went up to Chiang Mai and stayed in Chiang Mai for nearly a year and met a lot of people. Just a lot of conversations, a lot of little tips, you know, hacks that you start learning about, seeing what other people are doing. So I've been in Chiang Mai for a while, and that's been huge. Why has it been huge? There's one narrative on the internet where like Chiang Mai is a bunch of people who don't make money trying to sell each other things. Yeah, I love it here. I think there's definitely that mentality of quote-unquote not legitimate businesses. A lot of people are running affiliate sites or FBA is not a legit business. You know, you kind of hear that, that stuff being tossed around because they're not more brand-focused, I would think would be where they're going. I don't know. I think it's really scrappy tactics here. You know, you learn these people are really growing it from day one versus a lot of people I feel like more, you know, I'm going to say the states that I've connected with are doing it much more from a corporate approach with more funding, more of a team. Maybe they have a bigger vision. But I know for me, that's not that's not the business I grew. I grew up bootstrapped by myself as a solo founder. So the type of people that I was connecting with were highly relevant here, you know. Yeah, that's the kind of people that are in Chiang Mai is much more of those kind of bootstrapping people trying to figure out it on their own. Let's just have some fun. Let's compare Chiang Mai to Austin because they're places we both spend a lot of time in. People-wise, I've met a lot of similar people in both places. You know, there are people here literally right now that I was hanging out with in Austin. So it's some of them are interchangeable, you know, and I definitely met some more quote-unquote heavy hitters in Austin. I, I will admit that, you know, that they were really gunning, you know, they were shooting high. I think one thing in Austin that, that doesn't have that Chiang Mai does is throw around the word community, but you go to a coffee shop here. I feel like I'll sit next to somebody that's like, it was two days ago, I was sitting at a coffee shop and somebody was talking about SEO. You know, he was right next to me and he just was literally throwing out these tips for backlinks to me. I was like, I wouldn't have gotten that in Austin, that kind of, hey, we're both kind of foreigners, you know, over here, you know, we're both sitting at a coffee shop. You know, I'm sure we have something to talk about. I wouldn't have that kind of environment in, in Austin, I don't think. The percentage of people out here that are doing their own thing or quote unquote being an entrepreneur, almost every expat here is doing their own thing, which in, you think about in somewhere like Austin, that is not the case. You know, there are a lot of employees in Austin that are working for somebody else, you know, 
And I think that here it's like when you meet somebody, you're going to have something to talk about. They're going to be working on something and they're going to have some knowledge to bring to the table that maybe otherwise in Austin they may not, you know? I have to say it like there's a there's a kind of an interesting realism to it because there's this kind of self-ownership in expat circles that I really enjoy. And it, to me, the scale of what people are doing is never as interesting as like the intrinsic value of what they're doing. But in the States and in like more developed economies, the reality is, is that most people can't be entrepreneurs because of the cost structures. And so most of the people that you run into have these belief systems about themselves vis-a-vis the role that they play in whatever organizations they're in. And professional pride, I think is what you might call it. And nobody has that here. Like it just doesn't exist. You can't get it. (laughs) So like you might be doing something that's like small or medium or whatever, but it's you. Yeah. It's what you're doing. So there's kind of, I like that. People out here are hungry. I think in general, in general, you definitely get people that prioritize your lifestyle and are wanting to hang out and they want to go travel around Asia and make the four hour work week thing work. But I don't know. I feel like people that come here that are trying to make the first thousand bucks are hungry. And I like that, you know, they're hustling. They're trying to make things work. This week's podcast is sponsored by Refund Retriever. If your business uses FedEx or UPS, they're definitely worth checking out. Because if you ship that way, you're going to know that a lot of these companies guarantee that if your package doesn't arrive on time, that they'll give you full credit on their charges. But the reality is that FedEx or UPS doesn't automatically do that. And that's where Refund Retriever comes in. It'll audit your invoices for late deliveries and other billing mistakes that you may not have noticed. Refund Retriever will then directly liaise with FedEx or UPS to make sure that they issue you a full credit. And here's the best part. Their fee comes out of the actual savings they make for you. So you only pay when Refund Retriever performs. So no refund, no fee. So go check it out. What do you have to lose? And a big thanks to Refund Retriever for sponsoring the show. It was April of this year that I tuned into the Joe Rogan podcast and heard a very familiar voice. Chris, what's up, man? How are you? Good, man. How you doing, Joe? Thanks for doing this. So what kind of weirdos do you meet on the trail? You got to, yeah, you got to keep in mind anybody who's willing to take six months out of their life to go to the woods. Yeah. It's going to be a different breed. I mean, I think you definitely have your stereotypes. For those of you not familiar with the Joe Rogan podcast, it's a bit of a cultural force. If you look at iTunes right now, it's currently ranked the number one comedy podcast. So I was intrigued. I wanted to hear about how Chris got to go on this really popular, really cool podcast. And apparently it all started with an earlier interview that Chris did on another podcast, but it wasn't about through trekking. It was about another outdoor activity. Cody Rich was also does a hunting podcast and just started talking about some potential market overlap between backpacking and hunting. And he said, you know, you, know, you backpackers are so focused on weight, you know, us hunters are actually focused on weight as well. So why don't you come talk about, you know, being in the backcountry with backpacking food and all that kind of stuff. So I hopped on his podcast. Cody Rich's podcast, The Rich Outdoors. And that was about a year ago, this this time, last year. Little did I know, Joe Rogan listens to that podcast. Joe Rogan's a big hunter. A month or two later, he placed an order. Did you see his name come through? On your, like Joe Rogan ordered a Green Belly bar. Dude, exactly. Joseph Rogan. So yeah, he ended up becoming a customer. And I debated whether or not to reach out to him. 
I wanted it to be very organic, very genuine. He seems like a genuine guy. The last thing I wanted to do is to say I'm stalking your order profile. Right, dude. Yeah, he's a customer. I don't, yeah, that's that's just so unprofessional. So yeah, I think I just kind of sat on it for a while. I saw that he had been mentioning Green Belly on some of his podcasts, and he was eating them on the podcast. So I think there were at least a handful of episodes he was chomping on Green Belly. <laughs> and I know I was like, all right. And so I, yeah, I think I, I ended up sending him my book. Did you sign it? Chris Cage. I think I, I might have given him a note or something. Thanks for chomping on green bellies. Yeah, thanks for chomping on green belly. <laughs> something like that. And then ultimately, I sent him uh, an email and just said, hey, man, like it was very brief. Just said, hey, man, you know, glad you're enjoying green belly. Let me know if you ever, you know, want a discount code or something. And, you know, said, you know, we'd love to talk backpacking sometime on the show. You know, I said that. And um, he's like, yeah, can you come out to LA? And, you know, I said, yeah, I'd love to. And were you in Thailand at the time? I was in Guatemala. Funny you mention it. I'm actually I'm actually in Los Angeles tomorrow. You've been moving around. It was very natural. It was a total of like two emails. Did a producer then contact you with a schedule or what's the next step? No. It was like Tropical NBA, man. Hey, Dan, you want to talk on the podcast? Yeah. You want to come over tomorrow? Sure. Flew to LA. He gave me the address. Showed up at the studio. Went into the studio and his assistant, Jamie, was there. It was super chill, man. Like Just like you and me, you know? Like, Did it offer you to smoke pot before you... I don't remember. He definitely had some, he had like a big liquor cabinet and I think was just offering me some drinks and stuff. But he might've said, you know, if you want to smoke weed, you can. I think he might've had like a bong out or something, but I don't smoke weed. So I was just like, no, thanks. But, and did you guys do a pre-interview? Was there anything before? Dude, I was trying to, I, I asked him, I said, you know, do you want me to prepare anything? And no, just come on out. You know, were you nervous? It's super casual, man. Cause there's cameras on you too. Yeah, there are cameras. So I hate public speaking. I hate it. I definitely, yeah, I was nervous. And I don't think I knew how big his podcast was until after, which was probably a good thing. The fact that I knew who Joe Rogan was meant that I knew that he was semi-celebrity status, right? But I didn't know to to the degree of how popular his podcast really was. And I looked it up later because after that, I mean, I had so many people contact me like, dude, I saw you were on this. I'm like, what? Like, I know all you people, like all my friends like watched it, you know? <laughs> yeah. So then I started getting a sense of really how big it was. And I probably would have been more nervous if I knew how big it was, you know? And what was the impact on your business? It was big. What percentage of growth would you say? I've thought about that a lot and I don't have a good way to quantify it. Honestly, I would guess maybe 25% boost directly or indirectly to Joe Rogan. The only way I have to know it, because, you know, a podcast is all audio. It's not like you can track links. And it's kind of word of mouth. Like, we do have a survey after you order. It says, how did you hear about us? You know, and I think about 10% of customers fill that out. So you have a huge margin of error there, right? But of that 10% that filled it out, it was I think it was about 25% this year. So Joe Rogan, cool guy? Really cool guy. Super humble, super genuine it was pretty cut and dry. You know, it was like he showed up on time. We recorded the podcast. After the podcast, he had some other stuff to do. You know, he was like getting down to something else right after that. And Well, he definitely got his chance to talk to you because his podcast is unique in that he does at least half of the talking. Yeah. So it seemed like he wanted to have you on so that he could talk about hunting. <laughs> You're sitting there. <laughs> well, I wish I would have prepared for it more, frankly, to think about just some more topics that I could have, you know, jumped into. I really didn't know what he wanted to talk about. If he wanted to go backpacking, did he want to talk about nutrition? Did he want to talk about business? I wish I would have thought a little bit more about conversations to jump into because I think in hindsight, I was not as talkative as I could have been. And I think in reality, he said, I'm going to fill in some of these cracks. But you're right. He does do that a lot. He'll have guests on there. The next thing you know, Joe's, Joe's the one interviewing Joe. <laughs> 
There's this Christopher Hitchens quote, which goes something like, everyone thinks they have a book in them. And for most people, that's where it should stay. Your book, on the other hand, is different. It has a 4.8 review ranking. Congrats on Amazon.com. It is a how-to guide that's very straightforward, very tactical about like, look, you want to do a through a long through hike. Here's what you got to know. Here's how you got to think. Here's how you have to mentally prepare all these sorts of things. Let's talk about why you felt writing a book was an opportunity and how you executed it. So do you remember the moment that you were like, mm, man, I should write a book? Generally, yeah. The bridge between our relationship was Taylor Pearson, right? Taylor had written The End of Jobs and he had done really well with it. He had marketed it well. He had written a great book. Taylor Pearson used to work with us as a regular guest on this show and also just so happens to be your best friend from college. Yeah, we go back to college, yeah. Old great buddy. Anyway, I knew that he'd be a resource to talk to about writing a book. And I kind of had this idea of I had started to write some content for Greenbelly and I had actually written a very brief guide on how to hike the Appalachian Trail on, on my Greenbelly website. I started getting the idea of writing something much more comprehensive because I realized when I was writing it, I was like, this is a joke trying to write like a guide to hiking the Appalachian Trail on my website. But it got some traffic and I had some questions about it. And I was also looking at some other books that had been written on the topic. I'm not going to say they were bad by any means, but I felt like there was an opportunity to do better. And so I knew that Taylor could help me a little bit with more of the nuts and bolts of how to launch a book. I had no clue how to do that, you know. One thing that was unique about this book versus Taylor's was, or for any book for that matter, was I was viewing it like an Amazon product. So what I did is instead of saying, this is a guidebook, and because people are looking to how to hike the Appalachian Trail, it's going to do well. Oh, and I have an audience to market it to, so it's going to do well. I said, what's the keyword search volume for Appalachian Trail? And, you know, that's exactly what you know FBA guys do. And is there an opportunity to outrank them? Can I make a better product? And the short answer to that question was yes. You know, So then I started thinking about writing the book. And once I kind of talked to Taylor and had the idea to do the book, I literally just cleared my calendar for a month and wrote it. And tell me about that process. What does it look like? I wrote an outline. One of the tips that Taylor told me was make an extremely detailed outline. Because once you start writing, the organization, if I start writing a paragraph, I don't even know, for example, about what, all right, let's say I talk about, you know, I'm talking about backpacking tents in the book, and I'm start talking about the best materials for your backpacking tent tarp. However, farther down, I was talking about the same materials, but on backpacks. It's like, so if I start writing and then realize this misorganization, you know, you're too late into it. So the big thing that Taylor was helping me do is write a killer outline that's really paragraph by paragraph for the whole book. So I spent a couple of days doing that. And then we're talking about like 100 points here instead of a 15 point outline. Yes, much more like 100. I mean, I think my outline was like three or four pages. Literally almost outlined every paragraph. So you have like almost three words per paragraph, you know, this, 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 this. That was a very robust skeleton, if you will. And I operated Greenbelly on Saturdays. It was Monday through Friday. Don't ask me questions. Don't talk to me. Like I'm not looking at anything head down. You know, like it was a month of writing, wrote the book. And then it was just getting a decent launch strategy and then getting a cover. And that was kind of it. Honestly, I get kind of bored sometimes, you know, and the idea of writing a book sounded awesome. I was like, this sounds great. I can knock this out in a month. Who knows? I might learn some marketing tactics while I'm at it. Who makes a little bit of money on the side. Great. Decision made. I'm doing it. Was there something surprising about the process? It's not as hard as you might think. 
that was one big thing. It was it was essentially like a really long content post. And I've been writing content and it's just like think about instead of a thousand word content post, you write a forty thousand content word post. Everybody's in a research paper in college, right? Maybe not a forty thousand word yeah. research paper, but that's just all it is, you know. You've been doing some great content on Green Belly. Is that your primary marketing strategy at the moment? If I could kind of break it down roughly, I would say maybe 25% is content. You know, that brings traffic to the site, that builds newsletter. It's hard to quantify really where those people first found out about us because if they signed up for our newsletter a year ago, I don't have any any system tracking if they're ordering a year later or anything like that. But that brings in a lot of emails for us is doing content, you know. The other thing, yeah, Joe Rogan was a nice boost this year. We had done, just from being around a couple of years, we'd gotten a lot of PR from different outlets. You know, I think we had talked about that when I first talked to you. Was You have always been pretty good at getting PR. Yeah. So that was one thing that just kind of slowly, organically, just accumulated customers was, yeah, getting more and more PR. And it started dabbling some with the hunting community with, you know, some podcasts and stuff. So when we first met, there's this moment when like we sat down with your financial spreadsheets and we look, looked at all the numbers and like this. And, you know, Ian was like, man, now that we know like the truth of this business, like Chris, you have to double your prices. Like your financial future is dismal. And, yeah, you know, we were looking at, okay, well, are you going to get like retail distribution and are your margins even going to get worse? There's always this moment. I think you felt this way when you got your first Kickstarter campaign and you had your first few customers we were kind of like, man, I'm kind of in the shit. Like I got like a little bit of momentum here. And now you come here a hundred episodes later and your margins have improved vastly yeah. and you're in a much better spot. Yeah. What didn't you know then about how building, like basically going through the trough of sorrow, you know, that part where you were right at the beginning of the trough of sorrow where it's like, you had a website, you had some sales, you had a good Kickstarter campaign, but you were just about ready to go into this moment where it's like, holy shit, like I'm, this might not be financially viable at all. Yeah. What happened? That's a huge question. Summarizing the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I could really go off into a lot of different things. And you started selling the packages where instead of saying, you know, buy one bar for $4, you started getting people on a more like, you need a lot of these. Yeah, we added a subscription model. Doubling the prices was huge. Yeah, our profit margins were, that was the profit. You know, before that, it was like just all break even, you know, that was it. Just pay the bills. And now it's like, no, let's start making some money. So yeah, that was definitely one thing. I could go into marketing strategies. You know, I could go into doubling down on the things that were actually working. I was throwing lots of darts around, just trying to see what was working. Did you ever get retail distribution? Ish. At the very beginning, when I first started, that was the only time I ever did any retail marketing. I think I had reached out to like 50 stores and sent them all samples and said, do y'all want to order? And some ordered, some didn't. I mean, that was like pre-Kickstarter, you know? Now, I will do have some email, some stores emailing me saying, hey, can we get you in our stores? So if they do that, I'm happy to stock it. However, I'm not doing any marketing budget into that at all. I'm definitely not proactively seeking retail distribution by any means that was like a much bigger prospect when we first talked like that might be the the real savior for a business like this and it's easy to think that for so many businesses that like this is really a thousand true fans business right if you get like a couple thousand people that rely on your product and love your brand and they're on a subscription and all this it's like that's what you need to have wealth in this new economy you don't need to like have that magic phone call from Whole Foods and they're going to put you over the barrel anyway. No. And it's funny when you talk about retail and it's 
you could counter and say, why aren't you pushing retail? And <laughs> this might sound short-sighted for the business. From a business point of view, the margins aren't as good with retail, right? They pay you late. They pay you less. Sometimes they make you buy it back if it doesn't sell. Just from the financials, I don't like retail, but from the lifestyle, I don't like it. I don't want to be in the in the States constantly on the phone hustling with retailers, you know? I love much more of doing the e-commerce side of things. And I feel like long-term, that's just so much more opportunity with e-commerce. It's what I'm interested. It's what I want to leverage. So it has been interesting also a, a mentality shift of shifting from that retail idea to more just saying, dude, e-commerce is where my money's coming in. It's what's working. Like I'm not wasting any time with retail. It's almost like it sounds like you did what you needed to do for you. And your customers sort of, you've attracted the customers that work for you. Sure. Yeah, you could say that. You know, probably you can't just be the official food supplier of the Appalachian Trail. You know, you got to figure out a way to change the brand and bring it to busy people that want meal replacements. And you got $20,000 in your pocket now. What are you doing with that? Yeah, what, what's next? The big things is lining up production. Like I said, I was doing everything on my own. That has to be new facilities. The other thing is rebranding. Like you mentioned, you know, Appalachian Trail Through Hikers, it's just a tiny market. So part of the rebranding, I think, is going to be new packaging, new website. Where do we fit in the market? Are, are we just a through hiker meal? Are we going after executives? Where do we fit into the market? So I think that's those two things are the big things I'm grappling with right now. Are there people buying these bars that aren't backpackers now? Are there business people buying Greenbelly to save time yet? Yes and no. That's definitely not our big customer base is, is busy people. But I can tell just from, you know, customer inquiries, you know, it's always, hey, I eat these every day when I get home from work and, you know, stuff like that. But as far as our marketing efforts, it's 100%, I should say 90% in backpackers. Hunting is the other one. Hunting is something that's coming more and more into Greenbelly. More and more hunters are starting to get on. That could be some Joe Rogan stuff. But I'd noticed the hunting market is there's a lot of overlap. They really do focus on weight. And that's something that I'm, I'm just learning now is I, I'm just unfamiliar with that market. You know, hunting to me when I, I grew up hunting with my dad, but it was like, it was Billy Bob and the duck blind kind of hunting. You know, it wasn't like these guys, these guys are like carrying bows and hiking 20 miles into the back country and some seriously intense stuff. And weight is a huge priority. You know, they don't want to be carrying big stoves and that kind of stuff into the back country. So hunting is something I would like to explore more. All right. So here's the hardest question of the whole interview. Dun, dun, dun. And the last one. A lot of people are in that position you were in when you first came on the show, where you kind of look at your numbers and your heart jumps, skips a beat, and you got a little momentum, but you're not really sure if you're going to make it. Most people who want to start a business never even get themselves in that position, by the way. You got yourself there. What would you say to yourself back then? It would be much more kind of a mental thing, stick to it. Because, I mean, even well after we talked, there were constant doubts, you know? Keep to it, man, because you know, you're going to doubt this for the next 600 days, you know? But yeah, no, it's been a long road. So in just over a 1,000 days, you've doubled your professional income, plus you own the asset, plus you own the brand, plus you can live anywhere in the world and work only on Saturdays if you want to write a book. You're making it sound pretty good, man. Here's the thing, like, you're not that unique. You're just like a smart guy, but like, I'm just baffled by a lot of the talk I see online because it's like, Chris Cage isn't, you're not Elon Musk, man. Like there's a lot of people that we hang out with, we go to dinner with, everybody is in this situation. Like this is a thing you can do. That's kind of the message of this show. If Chris Cage can do it, you Chris can do it. If Chris Cage can do it, you can do it. <laughs> Chris Cage, what do the next thousand days look like? What are you going to be working on? What are the, 
challenges for someone in your position now as you see it? A lot. I get bored, you know? I think that's a big confession that I constantly wanting to do new things, you know? I'm going to launch a new flavor next year. That's going to be exciting. That'll be the first really big kind of green belly development. I haven't launched a flavor since we launched, which is kind of embarrassing. But that doesn't really solve the fundamental boredom problem, right? Like You're not electrified by this new flavor. No. And I have about three other ideas I've been thinking about executing. Some relating heavily to green belly, some not at all. I'm just going to kind of keep exploring. I think, you know, you talk about, you know, look at now that I have this asset. One thing that I'm, I'm really interested in is exploring and leveraging that asset more in unique, different, you know, unique opportunities, you know, whether it's a different product, an overlapping brand, you know, it's just exactly what I did with the book is just leverage Greenbelly's platform. I had a nice newsletter I could leverage. So I think, you know, future opportunities would be something along those lines. Cool. Keep on hiking. Yeah. Keep on, keep on. What did you think about this episode? We'd like to know. We got the comments, the show notes, the links to Chris's book, his website, everything is going on in this episode at tropicalmba.com slash greenbelly2. So glad Chris swung by to share his story of his thousand day plus journey. And I like his style. I like that he's doing things his way. I mean, there's so much advice out there. People saying, this is the way you got to do it. You know, if you want to be serious about your business, you need to do this and that. And the other thing, the entrepreneurs that I have always admired the most are the ones who have the confidence to do it their way. And often it's those unique paths that you find are the most profitable. It's like when they zig, you zag. We've all got that zag in us. We just got to believe in ourselves. That's it. Hope you're having a great December. We'll be back next week with a special Happy Holidays episode complete with TMBA bloopers. Join us then. That'll be next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.